Thank you, Dana. Uh, Quinn, Dana's, uh, and Brian's eldest son, is in Scotland for the week. Is he doing anything for school with that, or is he just there partying? No comments in church, God. It's Presbyterian heritage, so it's a Scotch tour. <laughs> um, we are going through Acts. Thank you, Chris, for your prayer. Uh, I hope that you're enjoying going through Acts. If you're not enjoying it, thank you for keeping it to yourself. So we haven't heard anything but positive comments thus far. And the funny thing about going through a narrative account like Acts is that each week it kind of resets where you were the week before because it's a story. It's very rare to just jump from one town to another, although that, that is coming. Um, so today we're going to finish up what Jeremy started last week. We'll be in Acts chapter 10, um, and we're going to pick up in verse 34. Um, would you make your way there? I'll uh, read for us and pray. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we make this announcement every once in a while. We love giving away copies of Scripture. If you don't have a copy of God's Word for yourself, please find me or Ethan after the service, and we'll run over to the office. We, nothing would, a couple things would make us happier, but we'd love to give you a Bible today. All right, Acts chapter 10, verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge, to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Um, I'm going to keep reading in just a second. <clears throat> but there's a sermon to come. And uh, don't get any ideas about doing this during the first point. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. They were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to remain for some days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Just in case you do get ideas of ending the sermon after first point, I'm preaching the whole way through. So we'll stop 
and we can, you can do your thing, but we're going to finish because I'm not sure the Holy Spirit is Presbyterian because that doesn't seem decent or in order. And we do everything orderly. So with that in mind, let's pray and ask that Holy Spirit would come and show us Christ and his God. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Son, Heavenly Spirit, we come as those whom you have reclaimed, as those who are still haunted by sin and bothered by doubts, as those hungry and thirsty. Would you meet us in your word and feed us again? Would you make us full of faith and the grace of Christ? Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you come and interrupt us where we sit today? Come and uh, what we thought was going to be a normal Sunday, would you come and open some eyes for the first time? Uh, convict a heart for the first time. Show forth the glories of Christ to someone here and so receive the thanks and praise of a grateful people. We ask this in the name and the finished work of Christ our King. Amen. So last week, Jeremy started us down this path with Cornelius and Peter uh, by breaking Jewish protocol. Look back to verse 28. He said to them, you yourselves know how lawful it is for a Jew, Peter, to associate with or to visit with anyone of another nation, Cornelius, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. That's where we started and ended last week with Jeremy that Peter is beginning to understand God's ongoing salvation to the nations, that it's breaking down uh, walls, dividing walls of religion, uh, dividing walls of culture and race, dividing walls of even politics. The Jews hated the fact that the Romans were over their region, right? They despised that. In fact, they were longing for a Messiah who would come and break the Roman bonds, right? Cornelius is what? A centurion. He's a representative of a political party that stands with its boot on the throat of Peter's Jewish heritage and party. So it even is breaking down this political wall. We ended last week with the table set, as it were, with Cornelius. He says this at the end. So he's got Peter there. Um, and he says, now therefore we're all here in the presence of God to hear all that you, Peter, have been commanded by the Lord. I think that's an interesting choice of words uh, or interesting choice of term by Cornelius. Peter, you're here because God has commanded you. Now, Cornelius is the centurion and he sent for Peter and Joppa, come to Caesarea. So who had the command issued to him? Peter did, via Cornelius, and Cornelius says, God has commanded you here. Well, funny enough, God did command Peter in his vision. He says, there's three men outside. Go with them right away, don't hesitate. So God did command him. So there's all this talk of command, and, and Peter himself uses it in his little sermon in verse 42. He says, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God. Now that's probably hearkening back to the end of Matthew 28 and the Great Commission, right? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, into all the world, teaching, preaching, making disciples, baptizing them, right? That's probably what Peter has in mind in that command. 
So all of this talk of command, I wonder, do you consider the charge that you have as a follower of Jesus to not only live according to the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, but the command to proclaim it, to live and to proclaim it is a command of Christ. Is that for you been a command or has it been an option in your life? And I, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago because we do have to say these things, but we have to say them correctly. And many of us come into the Reformed world, the Presbyterian world, a world like Christ Pres, with different things in our background where you may have been shamed into sharing your faith in your past, that sort of if you don't do this, God is going to be disappointed in you and you have to do this. Imagine how much he's done for you. Won't you at least talk to your neighbor? I have that in my own background and so I wanna make sure that as I communicate the seriousness of the command that we've been given that you hear it in the correct way. I think it would be a travesty to think of God, the, the, um, the, the cattle driver behind you with the whip sort of threatening you on. Get out in the world. You know that I love you. Now go tell someone. Somehow that doesn't, that doesn't fit the voice of the master. So I think there's a better way to hear this idea of command. I think we should hear it in the organic sense of the nature of the command to testify. So think of it this way, you have uh, good soil, you have the right amount of moisturizer and fertilizer and you plant a seed, an apple seed for instance. What should grow? An apple tree. I think that's the, the way we should think about this. When you plant a healthy seed in healthy soil, then healthy fruit grows out of it. When we think about a healthy Christian in healthy gospel soil, guilt and shame have no place there. Christ took those from us. He bore them on the cross. He carried them into the grave, and he left them there when he rose and walked out. What he has for us now is life and joy and peace. And so for the Christian in Christ, living that life of joy and peace and love out, you have to speak of it. It naturally comes out. Yes, it's a command, and you'll keep it as you share it. This is the example that I was thinking of. Now, <clears throat> it's happened exactly one time that I've been hit on. And it happened years and years ago. I was younger and we were in Oregon, and the only reason I know she was hitting on me was she came up and said, you look like the kind of guy I would like to get to know. Can I buy you a burrito? <laughs> and I said, well, I'm happily married, but yes, you can. <laughs> Turns out I like burritos. Um, I didn't take her up on the burrito, but I did go home and tell Tiffany. She said, did you take the burrito? I was like, no, and she goes, you're an idiot. It's a free burrito. So I do go to the gym, though, and the gym is a meat market, and, you know, there's beautiful men and beautiful women all hulking, um, and no one hits on me at the gym. I'll be honest with you, male or female. Um, but I do make it a point as a ministry to visit with as many people as allow me into their lives. 
male or female, I try and have this relationship. Many of my friends have come and worshiped with us here. And I want you to know this, one of the very first things I do when I'm talking to a female, young or old, is talk about my wife and my kids. Why would I do that? Because I don't want her to think I'm hitting on her. She may be the most beautiful woman, not named Tiffany, Daniel, Bobo, that I've ever laid eyes on. But I'm not interested in her for that reason. I want to know her as a person, as an image bearer of God. And I want her to know that Jesus loves her. And so I have to start that conversation. And to start it by saying, my wife and kids, you know, and I'm a pastor and this and that. Pastor doesn't carry as much uh, security as it once did. But if I get into conversations with beautiful women at the gym and it doesn't naturally come up that I have a very beautiful wife whom I love and adore, then something is wrong. The conversation should be natural. It should be organic. That I'm attached to one, and I'm not interested in replacing that relationship. But you should know this, that Jesus loves you and is pursuing you and and longs to embrace you. I need to have that conversation with folks, but it needs to start in this other way. And the Christian The healthy Christian soul is both a reliving and a retelling of the message of God's peace that's found only in Christ. And it takes both a reliving and a retelling. Now this chapter, Acts chapter 10, especially the back end where we wrapped up today, is referred to as the Gentile Pentecost. And if you look back at Acts chapter 2 later today and compare what went on in Acts 2 with the Spirit being poured out in Jerusalem to this passage, the Spirit being poured out in Caesarea on Cornelius and his household, this one's smaller, it's more isolated, but it's maybe even more surprising. Peter begins his sermon by highlighting something that he's known for a while but he hasn't really understood that God shows no partiality. Now that is a huge claim for a Jewish man. God shows no partiality when, in fact, probably his whole upbringing, he was raised, he was coaxed, he, he was formed to believe that God does, in fact, show partiality to the Jewish nation. And Peter would have had his categories expanded as he walked with Christ into Samaria, where he sees Christ visit with the woman at the of the apostles. You can kind of see their jaw on the floor in that moment. What are you doing? We don't talk with these people, Jesus. And Jesus, I, I love, Peter is such a cross-section of so many of us with all of our idiocies and um, conundrums and the way we eat our shoe letter all the time. Peter, Peter is God's gift to the church to say, it's okay that you're dumb. I love you anyway. Look at Peter. So Peter had his categories stretched and expanded. And earlier in this chapter, uh, and Jeremy preached on it last week with the, the sheet coming down with the various animals and God saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And those of us, he said, barbecue aficionados, right? If we love pulled pork, that's your life verse right there. Bacon-wrapped shrimp is back on the menu, boys. This is great. Peter's like, not me, not me, Jesus. I won't do it. And it came down three times, and uh, the Spirit says, Peter, what God has declared clean, you may not call common. And so that's the way Peter says that, communicates that to Cornelius. So Peter had, had this experience where he began to expand his understanding of 
where God's grace can roost. And I think it's interesting that he begins his sermon on that point because it shows how far he's come in his appreciation of another culture and another race in the gospel with gospel eyes. He sees others not as less than but as equal to. But we know also those of us who have been in Sunday school or maybe you've just read Galatians in the past, we know that in Paul's letter to the Galatians, Peter stumbles again on that issue. And Paul has to go and confront him in grace for marginalizing Gentiles in preference of uh, table fellowship with Jewish guests. Okay, so here's where that connects with us. How many of you have uh, been, by the Spirit, made aware of a personal indwelling sin? We do it every week. You better raise your hand. If you don't raise your hand, you're the worst hypocrite I've ever seen, not in my mirror. Um, Right, we, the Spirit comes to us and says, hey, you have this issue with hypercritical spirit or um, uh, lust or gluttony, leave me out of this, yes. Any number of things, and we confess it by the Spirit. We confess it, and we turn, we repent, and we try to walk in faith. How many of you that have confessed a sin and seen God's grace continue to face and fall to that sin? Yes, this is Peter. Peter has his grace uh, view expanded. I see that God is no respecter of persons. And then a few years later in Galatia, I prefer hanging out with the Jews because they're gonna think bad of me. Peter's just like us there. Tremendous growth, enormous change, but there's still so much work to be done in Peter's heart and in Jason's heart. And the grace is this, the challenge is this. Anytime we think we've arrived and are mature in the faith, this subtle heresy of partiality begins to take root in our souls. We need, we desperately need spirit-given humility in our telling and living of the gospel of a humbled Savior. The church has, through the centuries, flexed her strength, put people in their place, done and twisted whatever laws we had to to get our way and to stay in power with disastrous results. And what we see in scripture and what we know in history is the people of God are always at our best when we look and live and sound like a humble savior, not a triumphant savior, but a suffering people who cling to the cross and resurrection. That's when the church does her best work, when she's marginalized. Anytime we gain power, we botch it. And many of you are nervous about what's coming for the church in the West. Will America end up like Europe? Probably so. And that's okay. Europe's doing fine. Jesus is still on the throne. When the church in America falters, guess what? God will still be on his throne. In the same way that the gospel came and took root here hundreds of years ago and has borne so much beautiful fruit, guess what the gospel is doing now in the world? The exact same thing. The gospel is exploding in sub-Sahara Africa, exploding in India. In China, where the church is persecuted, guess what the church is doing? Growing in the grace of God, exploding. Yes, it may hurt for us in the years to come, but guess what? 
the gospel will go forth. It will bear fruit. It will never not go forth. It will never not bear fruit. And God will be glorified. The good news of a humbled Savior is the theme of Peter's sermon, which is actually a retelling of God's sermon. Notice the way Peter describes the message and mission of Jesus. He says the word that he sent to Israel. The incarnation, the birth of Jesus, is a sermon in and of itself. That it is God, He is God with us. The word was sent. And what the word did and said was this, peace. Peace through me. And so I ask, what sort of peace is in view? Is it spiritual peace as the war of God against our sinfulness was waged and won on the cross? Is it a spiritual peace? Is it a racial peace? As the Christ has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. Is it a spiritual peace? Is it a racial peace? Is it a physical peace? As the unjust and oppressing are judged and cast aside that the Lord might restore body and soul. Is it a spiritual peace? Is it a racial peace? Or is it a physical peace? Yes, it's each of those. It's all of those. Most scholars believe that Peter saying this idea of peace here is quoting from Isaiah 52, verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, and says to Zion, your God reigns. And along with Isaiah 52, Isaiah 57, 19, where the prophet says, peace, peace to the far and to the near. Jesus, at the inauguration of his ministry, also quotes Isaiah. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus preaches Isaiah chapter 61. And listen to the way peace, the peace that Christ is bringing, listen to the way he describes it in this graphic manner. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus came preaching peace. And peace is also a message to be published and proclaimed, but peace is also acting in faithfulness to bless others. Paul says this in Ephesians 2, for Christ himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. For all the other things that the gospel message of Jesus entails, peace is front and center. Peace I leave with you, my peace. Not peace like the world gives, peace. The message of Jesus is a message of peace and the mission of Jesus is a mission of peace. It's an all-encompassing peace, spiritual, racial, and physical, because in that incarnation, God himself took on physical, racial, spiritual form to bring redemption to all of those, and to end the wars of death, division, and disability. But that peace is exclusive. Though it's available to everyone, there's only one way to embrace it. Peace through the person 
of Jesus can only come from forgiveness through a name. Peter briefly retells the amazing account of Christ from his baptism by John to his healing and teaching ministries to his death and resurrection and life before the ascension. He says, we ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead and then he commanded us to declare that his is the only one, his name is the only one appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Now, if you read this passage again and again, which I was doing in preparation, trying to get a bead on what might need to be said in there, and I encourage you to do it again, I'm struck by the overwhelming Trinitarian nature in just half a chapter. Um, One of my seminary professors, I had a lot of great ones, and I mentioned this guy a lot, and I'm sure you're tired of me uh, name-dropping, but Sinclair Ferguson, um, I got saved every time he prayed, I think. He would pray before class, uh, the most amazing prayers, and then his lectures were so enthralling, and uh, one time he made a throwaway comment that has actually um, stuck with me. I can't remember so much of what he said, but this one I remember. He said, uh, I I, I wanted to try and do this in Scottish brogue, but I think it would be terrible. But he said, theological liberals focus almost exclusively on God the Father. Protestant evangelicals almost exclusively on Christ the Son, and charismatics almost exclusively on the Spirit. But the Bible, this is still him, the Bible is the story of God teaching his children how to pronounce his name. He first reveals his name to Moses at the bush that's burning and not consumed, and he says, I am. Who, Who should I tell him sent me? I am who I am. Okay, but really, you got a first initial last name I can put down here because that is gonna end up with me locked in a rubber room. Um, You just tell them I am who I am. And then at the end of Matthew's gospel, which we quoted earlier, we see Jesus tease out what that means to be Yahweh, what it means to be I am. I am, in the fullest sense of the name, is Father, Son, and Spirit, the God who has eternally dwelt as one in three. This is the name of God. Forgiveness of sin through his name comes to everyone who believes on the triune God, that God the Father in wisdom and love sent his only Son, that God the Son willingly took on flesh and lived our perfect holiness, And that God the Spirit takes that perfect holiness and applies that redeeming work by giving us a new heart and changing our name from enemy into child. If you would come to God for forgiveness through his name is the door you walk through. Peter says that it was to Jesus that all the prophets bore witness, which is shorthand in a way for saying all of the Old Testament is concerned with Jesus, every bit of it. One theologian that um, he's passed now, I think he passed in the early 90s, British fella, by the name of I. Howard Marshall. This is kind of a long quote, but this is great. He says, at first sight, this is a strange statement. Prophecies of forgivingness by the Messiah are hard to find. And the allusion to all the prophets seems highly exaggerated. The solution to the problem lies in two statements. First, in the Old Testament, forgiveness is associated with the name of Yahweh, 
the Lord. It is the prerogative of God. And those who seek the Lord will find that he will abundantly pardon them. So the first point to remember is that when you see the name Yahweh in Scripture, it's, uh, it's God's forgiving activity and his work. Second, the effect of the resurrection is that Jesus is exalted and receives the title of Lord. And the conclusion, he says, is obvious. By virtue of his exaltation, Jesus has received the prerogative of God to dispense the forgiveness of sins. So what's asserted in all the prophets, in all the Old Testaments, what's asserted of God can now be asserted of the exalted Jesus. So that's uh, what, what Peter is saying to Cornelius is everything that you've heard and believed is true about God is true about Jesus. What is the Bible about? What's the point of these dusty texts anyway? The answer is in his sermon. The way Peter traces the arc of scripture is about receiving forgiveness in God's name. There's a way to read and study scripture, read and study the Old Testament to gain a greater sense of morality. There's a way to read it and try and grasp a, a, a better sense of theology. And many people pour hours into it and study the data and details of isolated stories and all of those ways of reading the Old Testament miss the beautiful reality that it's not about morality. It's not about theology. It's not about minutia. It's about Jesus, the Messiah, the coming King, the risen one, the Son of God, the one who will lead in his train all the people of God from all over the world. So as Christians, we can and should go back and read the Old Testament with the end in view. The end being that all things are eventually made new in Christ. That just as God dwelt with man in perfection in Eden, he is dwelling with us again by his spirit. That he's leading us to our new and better home in him. This is the way to read the Old Testament, that we are fallen, but he is risen. And in Christ, God is reaching down to bring us up with him. And those are Peter's opening remarks in his sermon. Maybe he's just leading into his first point. God interrupted his sermon with an exclamation point as the Holy Spirit fell down on all who heard the word. Anywhere there are people coming to faith in Jesus Christ, it's only because the Spirit of Jesus Christ is at work, opening eyes, softening hearts, and changing lives. God is always the initiator when it comes to salvation. And God loves to save even more than we love being rescued. But he does it in his own way and by his own wisdom. And so think of this. I told you earlier that this passage is known as the Gentile Pentecost, the spirit being poured out on the nations. Um, parallel in many ways to the first Pentecost, um, which happened in Jerusalem. And I want you, if you want this week, reread those accounts and see where they line up, but notice this. In the first Pentecost that came to Jewish converts, the pattern was they heard the message, they believed, they were baptized, and then they received the Spirit, Acts 2, 38. 
nor were the Gentiles in Cornelius' house dealt with um, as the believers in Samaria in Acts chapter 8. They were preached to, they believed, they were baptized, and when they came up out of the water, Peter and John sent to them from Jerusalem, and they laid hands on them, and they prayed for them, which was when the Holy Spirit fell on them. So those two are different, Jerusalem and Samaria. And now in this account in Acts 10 is different as well. They hear the preaching, then the Spirit falls. Then there was worship, then there was baptism. The point is this, the same one Holy Spirit must be present and active to bring anyone into Christ, but he does the same act in unique ways that are almost impossible to match. And we have to say almost because the word seems to always be present where the spirit is active. Whatever else is going on, the spirit is present as the word is preached and people come under conviction. And along the way, there's all sorts of things the church has argued about and murdered each other for as to when does the water get applied and to whom and to how much, right? The, my favorite way is to watch the Orthodox priests baptize the babies by immersion three times. <laughs> we argue about all of that, and Scripture is clear where it's clear and where it's not, it's not, and all we can do is be faithful. But what we know is that the Spirit comes and brings the Word to life. There's an ancient Jewish prayer recorded in the Talmud that Jewish men would pray every day. And I imagine that many, if not all, of Christ's apostles and many of his disciples prayed it daily before the Spirit made the gospel clear and real to them. Here's the prayer. Oh God, I thank you that I am not a Gentile, that I am not a slave, and that I am not a woman. And that sort of better than mentality was woven into every aspect of Judaism. And it's gro it is a gross mix mm -hmm, mischaracterization of God's intent to bless the world. We see that in the garden and his command to go and bear fruit and multiply. To bless the nations, it's a gross mischaracterization. To bless the nations that we hear in the promises to Abraham. It's a gross mischaracterization to be a light and salvation for the Gentiles that we hear about in Isaiah and on and on and on it goes. God had chosen to use Israel as his instrument to make his name known and they had come to believe that they were not only unique but were deserving. I think the immediacy of the spirits falling on these Gentiles in Cornelius' household, I think that's God's way of giving a dig at the superiority mindset that the pseudo-religious had, that the pseudo-religious continue to have, that there's a sense in which, yeah, 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 God loves everybody the same, but I'm a little better. It seems to me that God is saying to Peter and his circumcised friends that, no, no, I'll save those you consider furthest from my grasp faster and more fully than you can fathom. Peace and forgiveness, that's where we start with Peter. They're experiential aspects of all that we gain in Christ by the Spirit. 
But the simple truth is too many of us that are in fact alive by the Spirit live as though we have forgotten the perfect peace of Christ. And then since we don't have it or we forget what's ours, we begin to do things to fabricate a personal peace for ourselves. We slander, we gossip, we connive, we play busybody, and we build a peace that we prefer. On the other side of that, though, an equal number of us live as if forgiveness is just outside of our grasp, and so we let fear drive our decisions, terrified that we'll mess up and be unable to earn it, be unable to earn that forgiveness. And the beauty of the forgiveness offered to us in the gospel is this. Of course you're gonna mess up. Of course you won't deserve it. If either one of those things is true, it's my joy to call you out of your critical, fearful spirit and back into the true peace true peace and costly forgiveness that is truly and eternally yours in the spirit. The open secret of the gospel is this. It's open for everyone, regardless of race, gender, and status. It's open and offered to all. The expansive announcement of freedom for the world was a scandal in the days of Christ. A scandal in the area, in the era, sorry, of the earliest church and it's still a scandal today that anyone can come in and be embraced by God. The gospel, though, like I said, is growing around the world like never before. Perhaps because its openness is unlike anything else. It's for all colors of skin and variations of language. It's for women oppressed by Islam and Hinduism. It's open to those suffering under the slavery of dictatorial government regimes. The scandal of the gospel's vast openness is the immense grace of God to save sinners and idolaters. Why do you think the leader of North Korea is so adamant of keeping the church out? It's not because we care so much about communism as what it'll do to a society of people set free. But the openness of the gospel is changing the, the shape of the world the secret of the gospel is this, that the Spirit must be present to whisper the word of Christ to us and make us alive. The Spirit must be there to give us a hunger and thirst for the Lord, His word, His church, and His world. And the secret is this, as faithful, as winsome, as intellectual, kind, as generous and careful as each of us might be, we're fully dependent on the secret work of God in and through His Spirit to fall on our children, to fall on our friends, to fall on our co-workers, to fall on this world. All we can do is be faithful to share, tireless in our prayers to the Lord to do as he's promised. The secret here is no less scandalous than the openness of the church. So I have friends that aren't in any church, and I have friends in churches of other theological stripes, and when we get to conversing about God's sovereign choice of who he saves and who he doesn't, right? There's never been a better pipe and beer question than the sovereign grace of God that we get all caught up in our shorts about. My go-to answer is this. Who do you trust more than God? Who's more gracious than the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? Who's more generous with the abundance of grace that he pours out than God? 
well, I'm going to trust God to save whom he will because he'll save a lot more than, than we'll decide to be saved by him. The secret has been open as long as God's spirit has been inspiring humans to write his word. The scandal is that we didn't have eyes to see or ears to hear until the spirit came and made us alive together with Christ. Being made alive together with Christ is something that Jesus says when it happens, when a sinner repents, there's more joy in heaven. There's dancing, there's singing, there's feasting one day. And we need to experience that in our church. I told you that I was going to tell you about our coming combined Sunday school that starts July 14th. It's going to be called Stories of Rescue. And for five weeks, we're going to hear testimonies of the men and women in this church. Some of them just normal, like Darren Lawson, if we can call him normal. Some of them completely amazing, like Gifty Benson and African Children Hospitals. We're going to hear about worldwide uh, culture-shaping testimonies, and we're going to hear about people who just struggle with doubts and pray, please, Jesus, don't let me screw up my kids. And you know what we should do in response to each of those stories? Worship God, celebrate, and praise Him in the Spirit. So I hope that you'll come. I hope that you'll take part in that, and I hope that the word has reached you and penetrated your heart, that this week you'll go out and relive this message, and that when the opportunity arises by the Spirit, that you'll have the freedom and the courage and the beauty and love and joy to share it. I pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? Father, we're thankful that you reach down in time when we are running away. That the scandal of the gospel is that Christ goes into every dark nook and cranny of this world to claim each one of those that are his as his own. We uh, trust that there are many in this room that have been embraced and others who haven't. And all we can do, Father, is be faithful and ask you to do as you've promised. Uh, to come and bless your people in kindness, in the richness of your mercy. Um, would you make us the body of Christ's prayers, um, a body that is free of guilting people into faith, but free in our talk, free in our relationships, free in the love of Christ that comes through us to them. Would you make that true of us? Not just that we would be a church where sinners are welcomed and warmly embraced, but that we would be a representation of Christ here who, while we were yet sinners, gave himself for us. Teach us to do that by the Spirit and receive the thanks and praise of a grateful people. Amen. Would you stand?